0: Judges is one of my favorite books, but it's also the most depressing book in all of the Bible. Now, I'm not, I'm not a melancholic personality. I don't like depressing things, but I, I see something phenomenal in the book of Judges and I see what appears to be an almost hopeless cycle of sin that is so depressing. I mean, how many times can you make the same mistake? You know, it's like when I lived in Illinois, I used to go take the boys up to see the Cubs play and we loved Wrigley Field, we loved the Cubs, but just the Cubs, until just recently they weren't going, everything reset in the universe when the, the, you know, with the Cubs victory. But, um, uh, you know, my favorite t-shirt, Don Zimmer was the manager of the Cubs at the time. And I, I love this t-shirt. It said, oh, relax, anybody can have a bad century. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of the t-shirt you ought to buy when you, when you read the book of Judges, only it covered more than a century, probably closer to a century and a half. But it's the cycle of we're, we're doing great, we're, we're serving God. And then we grow cold and indifferent. We begin to sin. And God deals with us, but we won't repent. So he sends in uh, taskmasters and cruel people to lord it over us. And then we realize how bad we've got it and how, how good we had it. And so we repent, or the children of Israel repent and God sends a deliverer or a judge. That's where the book gets its name. And then the people repent and the cycle. St- and it, but the problem is it just goes over and over and it's very depressing. But chapter 10 is maybe my favorite chapter in Judges because something unusual happens. Something unusual happens. And you see the cycle. It's the same cycle, but something new enters the mix. In almost every other case, it appears, I'm not saying their repentance was not genuine. You never make that judgment about someone's repentance. But it is true that they just seem to just cycle just over and over again. But something unusual happened in chapter 10 that I think helps us understand about dealing with disobedience. Now, loved ones, most of the time a sermon preached from a Pentecostal pulpit or or any church that's a holiness church is don't do that. Or if you've done it, stop doing it. And I agree. I agree. But so seldom do we go to the heart of the matter and, and that's why we don't believe that we'll ever break out of the cycle that we're in. Some of us that love God have found ourselves in the same old cycle, the same old stuff. And we do well for months, maybe for years, and then it's just the same thing. Now, it, it doesn't mean we're not growing, but you know, we're growing, but we're also doing this as we grow. We're cycling into the same old sins. And, and I'm, I'm not here to fuss at you for that. We all have weak spots. We all have sp- spots of strength. But there's a difference between having a cycle and capitulating to the cycle. And what we want to do is to not capitulate. We don't want to surrender. Now, I think it's wise to realize that you have weak areas, and and I And I don't think that it's wise to say, "Oh I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I was an alcoholic for fifteen years, so I'm going to go into a bar and it's not going to bother me at all. No, if that's a weakness in your life, you probably need to do your witnessing at chick-fil-A <laughs> or something like that um, i've I've gone into bars for various reasons, never to drink. I promise you never to drink, um, usually to back before cell phones i'd had to use a phone or something like that. And I've never gone into a bar where I felt tempted, maybe you ought to get drunk, or maybe you ought to take, because it's never been a hook in my life. I've never had an issue with alcohol. But to somebody that has had an issue with alcohol, probably walk down to the laundromat to use the phone. You understand what I'm saying? You don't, you don't ignore weaknesses. You don't ignore your, your propensities. And I think it's wisdom to, to play to our strengths and not to our weaknesses. But, um, but what, what we do need to understand is that though God gives us common sense to guard against things, we can also address the cause of the cycle. And that's what I want to talk about today. Let me read this somewhat refreshing story in Judges chapter 10. It's as close as you're going to find to a refreshing story in um, Judges, most of the victories are left-handed assassins and, you know, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty grizzly tale, but in Judges chapter 10, it says, now, now God has been talking to them. Uh, it's like God said, I delivered you, or God, or excuse me, the writer of Judges says God delivered them from, I think it's like seven groups, six or seven groups in the first part of the chapter. And, uh, but then it says that the sons of Israel fell into sin again after God delivered them from all of these enemies. And then in verse 10, then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you for indeed we have abandoned our God and served the Baals. Now, usually what you find is God having to convince them that's what they've done. But they said, yes, we we have sinned against you. We've abandoned our God, served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not save you? And then he lists all of these nations. He says, they oppressed you. You cried out to me, verse 12, and I saved you from their hands. Yet you abandoned me and served other gods. And here's the shocker. Now, you expect this from Jeremiah because by the time you get to Jeremiah, they have crossed a line. Jeremiah is about, are you going to cooperate with recovery? Not can we avoid judgment? Judgment's coming. And the question is, can you humble yourself and survive judgment and come back into the land? But here's something that's new to them. The concept was not new. It was clearly spelled out in Deuteronomy. Moses had the children of Israel pass through the mountain of blessing, the mountain of cursing. He said, if you obey me, this will happen. If you disobey me, that will happen. They knew the concept, but now all of a sudden, God begins to fulfill the promises we don't like. See, in Deuteronomy, they were required to say amen to the blessings. And boy, this is hard, but they were required to say amen to the curses. He says, therefore... I will no longer save you. This doesn't sound like God. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Now, if Israel had done like they had at other times, they'd said, okay, well, we tried. We tried. Just can't reason with God. So persnickety. Tells us to repent. Then when we try to repent... You know, he tells us he's not going to do it. But no, they didn't do that. They pressed closer. God said, I am not going to save you. And this is what they said. We have sinned. And do to us whatever seems good to you. Only, if you will, please save us this day. In other words, they said, Lord, you're right. We don't even deserve this chance. But... We're not changing our plea. We did wrong, and if you don't save us, you are justified in what you do. You are justified in what you don't do. But we're asking for mercy. And then, God, you know, if I'd been God, I'd have said, "All right, add a boy." Now you, now you. But God says nothing. So what did they do? This is so amazing. In verse sixteen, God says nothing. So they removed the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Here is a group of people <coughs> that were looking ahead to another day. And God said, I'm not, do, I'm not going to let you walk in this cycle that you've always walked in. He said, and I'm just, I'm not going to save you. (coughs) So what did they do? They said, all right, whatever you say is right, but we're going to get rid of our foreign gods. And not only that, we are going to start serving you the way the word commands us to serve you. Here are a people that turn from wickedness. Here are people that burn their idols after God says, I'm not going to do anything to help you. And then there's that last phrase. (coughs) And it says, he could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Now, when you read this, you might think it's talking about a deliverer or a judge, but it's talking about God. You read it in other uh, translations. He could no longer stand to see their suffering. His heart was moved. Another uh, translation, his heart was grieved beyond expression when he saw the misery of Israel. And then God begins to work through uh, in chapter 11 through Jephthah, I believe it is. And and God, God does bring deliverance to his people. I think that this story is worth stopping as we approach 2022 to talk about. Because here is a people that have fallen prey to their old cycles. They're asking God for a new and better day. And God says, I've given you new and better day over and over and over again, but it hasn't changed the way you live. So I'm not going to move the way that you've always known me to move. I'm not going to move. And there is a breakthrough in this realm right here And it's not the only time God did it, but God said, no, I'm not going to move. And then they said, well, then we are going to do what's right anyway. They didn't say, if if I knew you were this kind of God, I would have never served you to begin with. They didn't say, well, it's God's not fair. You worked for this group. You didn't work for us. They didn't say, well, if that's the way you want it, I'll just get myself out of this fix. I saw a movie a few years ago. I don't want to promote the movie, but there's a man who's in a life and death situation. And in a moment of desperation, he calls out to God. He's about to get in a fight. He can't possibly win. And he calls out to God. And basically what he says is, please help me. And in a moment of silence, You see the defiance rise up in him and he says, I'll handle this myself. That's what you see oftentimes when God doesn't behave the way we want him to behave. They said, the problem is us. The problem's not you. The problem's not her. The problem's not the denomination. The problem's not the government and the fact of the matter, there may be plenty of blame to go around, but they said, I'm not going to focus on other failure around me. We have sinned. And God allowed them to do right when there was no promise of right paying off. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been where God told you to do right where God told you to do right and you did right and you thought at least angels could play a little tune. (laughs) And you realize that you're doing right and your circumstance has not changed one iota. That's what we see. Now, What I want to do today is I want to use this as a backdrop, and I want to talk about two things. Well, three things, actually, if you include the Christian life lessons. At the end, I want to give us four steps to to help us handle disobedience. But I want to show you what disobedience can look like, and then I want to give you three examples from Scripture because I believe it is so important as we go into the new year that um, we enter with a pure heart. That doesn't mean perfect doesn't mean perfect, it means that it is right. That's what we mean by pure. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna I, I want you to take a quiz today. We're gonna find out that when we're in rebellion, our heart generally takes on one of three approaches. And that's what we're gonna, where we're gonna spend most of our time. First of all, let's talk about what disobedience looks like. Number one, disobedience can be unintentional. Um, there, you know, I've always been disturbed by people who teach that one sin is as bad as the other. One sin will separate you from God as as any, you know, any sin will separate you from God. Any sin will send you to hell. And I understand the theology behind that. What they're saying is that sin is sin and sin is a a lack of perfection uh, in the eyes of God. I understand that in that sense, every sin is alike. In that sin, Uh, Speeding intentionally is as bad as robbing a bank in, in that sense of the word. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the Bible does not teach that all sin is equal. There was sin that warranted under Israel's law a death penalty. There was sin that that warranted restitution. And even in restitution, there was a breakdown of things. If you stole because you were a thief, you had to pay back this much. If you stole because your children were hungry, you had to pay back this much. God understood the difference. And we need to understand that though sin is sin and we ought not treat any sin lightly, we do need to understand that if we go outside and Pastor Justin has had his license plate stolen, that's a sin. It's a sin that we've stolen his license plate, but it's not nearly the sin as if we shot him and took his life. So we need to understand that though there are degrees of sin, there is that sense that sin is sin, but it goes to a deeper matter. And it is this, whenever we sin and we ought not to, we don't have to, but we do. When we sin, an important question that has to be asked is what is the condition of our heart? Not not in order to excuse our sin, but to understand our process out of that sin. David Wilkerson said this, I was a student in in, uh, college and I got to hear him at a crusade. And he said something, it was the first time I heard it. And it, it, it didn't rattle me, it just, I really had to process. It took me a while to process. He, he preached a message on Samson, one of the best messages I've ever heard, maybe the best message I've ever heard on my life in the life of Samson and his sin, his compromise. And he talked about not the sin as much as the recovery. How can you recover from, from sins like this? He said, this, was, uh, this would have been uh, in the late 70s. And he said, there's coming a time soon when even trusted names, we're going to see them exposed uh, for, for very serious sins. And that was going to happen over the next few years. Those of you that are old enough to remember, remember those of you that are young enough. I don't, we don't have time to talk about it or too young. We don't have time to talk about it, but he said the day is coming when people are going to be exposed. And he says, one of the questions the church is going to ask is why was this person exposed and this person not exposed? Why did this person Did God deal with them this way and somebody else with the same sin? God dealt with that way. And he said, I don't expect the average person in the pew to understand this. But he said, we've got to get close enough to God where we understand the difference between weakness and wickedness. Now, on the surface, it sounded like he was saying, well, you know, you can do this and it's a grievous sin. But you say, oh, I didn't mean it. That's not what he was talking about. He said, God is about to separate wheat from chaff and the weak that have fallen are going to be restored if they'll remain humble and the wicked are going to be exposed. And he used this example. He said, and he, he was preaching to, to pastors, so he used pastor as an example. He said, a pastor that has a moral problem or a moral failure at some point in his life, and it was he used this he said, if it was a one-time thing and it was, it was repented of quickly and restitution made and all of that, he said, that may be a sin of weakness that God will show mercy to. He said, but I can guarantee you if the pastor's having affairs with nine women in the church, that's not weakness. He said, that's wickedness. Now, even that illustration can break down and it, it sounds like we're saying, well, this guy, it's okay to have one affair. That's, mm-hmm. that's not what he was saying. He was saying, before you can walk out of these cycles, this is the point I'm trying to make. I probably went in too much detail. Now, now you're wondering, you know, but what does this mean? Or how much can I get away with? Um, that's, that's not what he was saying. He says, before we can break free from sin, we've got to settle heart issues. We've got to see what's going on inside. Now you old timers, forgive me for telling an old story. New folks will appreciate this. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about uh, a man that was wealthy and he lived in an elegant home in the British countryside and and in one of those rare hills that you find in England. He had his house built on top. He was looking for a carriage driver. And he said, I want a man that I know my wife and children will be safe with. He asked the question of everyone he interviewed, um, you know, some basic background questions. But then he always asked this question. How close? What kind of skill do you have? How close can you get to the edge of the cliff without losing control and my wife and children going over the side? And he said, some boasted, said I can get two feet from the edge and I can maintain control. Another one said I can get a foot from the edge. Someone said, Oh, I can get six inches from the edge. Another particularly arrogant one said, said, uh, my Lord, he said, I can get right up to the edge so that part of the wheel is over the edge, but I'll never lose control. And he just kept interviewing. And finally he asked it of one candidate for the job who looked at him with a quizzical expression. He said, sir, who am I transporting? He said, my wife and children. He said, I don't understand why in the world would you want me to get close to the edge? He said, I don't know how close I can get to the edge, but I can tell you what I would do. I would stay as close to the, to the hillside as I could not see how close I could get to the edge. And the man said, hired. See, as we grow in the Lord, sometimes we think it's maturity to say, I can get this close without going into the world or We talk about rules and we don't like rules and and we forget that Paul said there are some things we set aside for the sake of the ministry or for the sake of others. And loved ones, I think one of the things that God is doing in the name of freedom we have told people they can live so much like the world that we can't differentiate them from the world. And I know I sound like a clothesline preacher. I know that I sound, you know, like a like an old grouch. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, that we, we don't enhance our spirituality by dropping our guard. We don't enhance our walk with the Lord by seeing how much we can walk like the world. And I know that there is a dynamic of attraction where we try to attract the world, but we must not be like the world. We must We if, if, if it is our, if, if what is attracting the world is that we use their music or we dress in their clothes or we use their language, we're not drawing them to Jesus. We're drawing them to ourselves, And that can result in a big crowd, but it's not going to result in a big church. And there's a big difference. And Wilkerson was saying, we've got to get to the heart because some sins may be unintentional. How many of you know when you're a new Christian, you'll do things gladly that you don't have any idea or are not right? You know, I, when, when, when I began to serve the Lord and, and all through my ministry, I've had people say this. You know, Pastor, I've done this for years. And then all of a sudden, Sunday night, something happened and I realized God doesn't want me to do this. And he said, why was it okay with God for 30 years? It's not okay anymore. I said, it wasn't okay with God for 30 years. I said, you were in the world and then you came to Christ and you were, you were a new Christian and God knows that you can't fight every battle at once. Yeah. Has it ever occurred to you that, um, uh, let's, let's look at this map. Here's my map of the promised land. You can see it right here if you have a good imagination. Here's Egypt and God says, I'm gonna lead you out of Egypt right over here to the promised land. I mean, it's kind of a straight shot. But when you read the story, God leads them south and then they wiggle around for a while and then they come up on the other side and they enter from the east when every Garmin and every Waze program would have told them to go straight from the west, even in bad traffic. The secret is given uh, Oh, I can't even remember now. I think it's numbers. But this is what Moses explained. He said, the reason God led them on that path is that if they had gone straight into the land, they would have faced the Philistines first. And they were the Borg. They were the Klingons of the ancient world. And this is what he said. He said, if that had been their first fight, they would have become discouraged and gone home. So he sent them around and and Gilgal was not an easy place to go. Jericho was not an easy enemy, but they didn't have the ferocity and the intensity and the fighting nature that the Philistines did. So God said, I'm going to give you an easier battle first, and then you'll work your way across. That's the way God deals with us. That's why we get saved. And then um, we usually go through a phase and nothing's wrong. I'm, fi- I'm fine to do this. I'm fine to do that. And then we try to justify it. We try to make it spiritual. Well, I'm not going to be enslaved in the yoke of bondage. Nobody's going to give me a set of rules. You know, and and that's, that's what's called your last dying gasp. Before God gets a hold of your heart and you say, I need to lay this down. I need to move away from this. So there's a lot of times we do things that are just unintentional. Um, You know, it's like Jesus described to his disciples. You guys still with me? Okay. Okay. God said, you don't need a bath, but you do need to wash your feet. We just get dirty feet sometimes, And it's sometimes it's due to a lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's due to a lack of action. And we are going to be in the process of learning. I shouldn't do that. I should do that. This isn't right. This is right. That's, that's low grade. That's like a low grade fever. It's rebellion and it's sin, but it's unintentional. Now, it doesn't mean it's okay we, because we are to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We are to move away from it, but God recognizes that it's a process and the process is called sanctification where we're becoming more like Jesus every day. But now sometimes rebellion is intentional. We know right from wrong and we may be in disobedience because we know to do something and don't do it. Theologians call that a sins of omission or we may know we ought to do something and we don't. Theologians call that sins of commission. So whether it's something we fail to do or something that we do intentionally, that's an intentional disobedience and it's a little more sobering. you, you, You can't just, you know, you can't say, well, I didn't know that. Well, we know this. But we want to avoid at all costs what is C on your outline, and it is called the sin of a high hand. It is by far the most dangerous. It's a phrase, it's only used, it's only translated that way in, in certain translations, and then it's only used a handful of times. But uh, the sin the of the high hand means that I'm, my hand is raised in defiance. I know this is wrong but God's not going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to be shamed into repentance. And we make it sound really noble in our culture. We say, well, I'm not going to be shamed into repentance. If I repent, it'll be because I know I need to repent and I'll do it. And somehow we think we deserve a badge for that. But it's the sin of the high hand. Now, let's move to the second part. Three examples before us. I'm going to give you three examples of nests that rebellion and disobedience can live in. The nests are of our choosing, of our building, and I'm not going to, we're not gonna have a quiz at the end. At the end, we're not gonna say type one of rebellion over here, type two over here, and type three over here, and if you're bad, type three, go outside so if the lightning hits you, it won't affect the electronics. No, <laughs> we're not gonna do that. This is a self-test and you grade your own paper. Here's number one, sometimes disobedience finds itself in our lives and our response is one of brokenness. David, in light of the great sin, do you know that it took David when he committed um, uh, adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband basically killed? Do you know that it was about a year before David came full to repentance I can tell you that was the most miserable year of his life. That year was worse than the year of Absalom's rebellion. That year was worse than being chased by Saul and going from one desert place or forest place to another because it was a year he was out of fellowship with God. He would ask God to restore his song he would ask God to restore his confidence. He came to the point where he realized that this sin is bad. He said, against you and you only have I sinned. David wasn't saying, well, I didn't mistreat anybody else. It was just you. David was saying, with all the evil that I did, I sinned against Bathsheba. I took her husband. I, I, and there's every indication that they loved each other. There was no reason for that. No justification for it. David was uh, the, the, the initiator And and the enabler of the murder of her husband. Uh, In fact, if we had time to talk about it, we don't. Part of the rebellion of Absalom, so many prime names came alongside Absalom because they were from the family of Bathsheba. And that, that family had been sinned against. He knew he had let Israel down. But he said, in in spite of all of that, with all of that evil that I did, the worst thing about it all is that I sinned against you. I broke not only your law, but I broke your heart. But this is what he said. He said, wipe out my sins, blot out my transgressions, make it as though it had never happened. Why? He said, because you have promised to always welcome a spirit that is contrite. And a heart that is broken. Loved ones, if we want to deal with our sin by by negotiating, we'll never be really free. If we want to deal with our sins by explaining, well, if I had a better wife, I wouldn't have committed adultery. If I would had a better husband, I wouldn't have cheated on him. If, if my parents hadn't been so dumb, I wouldn't have smoked pot, you know. If, if you want to negotiate through your problems, you, you, may, you may get legal forgiveness, but you'll never get freedom. And, and David said, you have never turned away someone that comes to you broken. You've never turned away someone that comes to you in contrition. And we know that David uh, that, uh, that Peter... Failed. We know he failed, boy. Every every Easter, my word, he's got to hate Easter in heaven at least the way we celebrate it, because we pick on him, man. In fact, I don't know, but I've wondered sometime if Easter in heaven was the least enjoyed holiday of the apostles because of the way we brutalize them. I know that's not true. I've just asked the question. You know, poor old poor old Thomas, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Well, what do you know about Thomas? Well, I know he was a doubter. You know, he doubted. But what we don't know is that on two occasions, uh, Thomas, when nobody else was going to follow Jesus, Thomas said, let's go. Let's. If it means we die with him, we die with him. I mean, you can, you can have two heroic, courageous moments wiped out by a bad Sunday. And I'll tell you something else about Thomas. He got over his doubt in one service. Some of us are going to counseling for 15 years to get over our anger with the church or our anger with our spouse or whatever. Uh, he might have been a doubter, but he was, he was over it quickly, you know. Well, it's the same way with Peter. Peter, and I'm not putting down counseling. We all need counseling. Uh, all of us need counseling at some time or another. But Peter was so arrogant. Everybody failed Jesus, but he's the only one that said, I won't fail you. And Jesus, Jesus understood what was going on. He said to the disciples, I have prayed for you. Satan has desired to have you all, plural. Satan has desired to have you all that he might sift you like wheat. And then he said, but I prayed for you. But it's interesting that when he said, I prayed for you, it goes from plural to singular. And it's like he points at Simon Peter. He said, it'd be like me saying, Y'all, it's gonna be a tough year coming up, but I'm praying for you. And Justin, I'm praying your faith doesn't fail. You know, Justin would be, you know, Jesus understood what was going on. And the next time, after he denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said, the next time he sees Jesus is on the seashore. Jesus has resurrected from the dead, given them the miraculous catch of fish, and Jesus is cooking breakfast. Come and dine. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Now, I always thought that, well, maybe he asked him three times because he denied him three times. You know, like, well, let's see how it feels, Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? I said, do you love me? You know, no, it wasn't that. And then I thought, well, Jesus asked until he was satisfied that Peter loved him. But Jesus knows all things. Jesus didn't ask three times and then say, okay, you've convinced me. No, I'll tell you what was going on, I believe, on that shore. It was of vital importance. His ministry depended on the fact that Peter knew he loved Jesus. (laughs) Failure can rob you of all perspective, even perspective that helps you. I believe that Jesus kept saying, Peter, do you love me? Because he knew Peter's heart. He knew, see, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus saw it. But after his denial, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus knew what was going on in this heart. And Jesus never turns aside brokenness and contrition. And I believe he kept saying, Simon, do you love me? Because it was important for Simon to come to the point where he realized that I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Jesus knows that I love him. See, first time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Simon, do you love me? Lord, oh, this is about that denial. Yes, Lord, I love you. And when he asked him the third time, the scripture says that Peter was grieved. And I know there are some things about the wording Jesus used, but we just don't have time to deal with it. Peter was grieved, there's that love word, grieved. He was grieved that he asked. And Peter, if he had been like us, you know what he would have said? Lord, I see where you're going. I said, I loved you, I said, I wouldn't fail you, but I did. I said, I wouldn't deny you, but I did. I guess I don't love you after all. But Peter came to a moment of Holy Ghost realization He looked at Jesus with the failure of his denial, the failure of his arrogance, the failure of his prayerlessness, the failure of his presumption, and he stuck his head above all of that and said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I couldn't even pray for an hour in the garden. You know that I said, everybody here will fail you except me, and I was the first to fail you. You know that I would deny you three times when I had an opportunity to let my light shine and I wouldn't and I didn't. You know all of that. But Lord, you know that in my heart, in spite of my failure, and it was my failure, in spite of my sin, and it was my sin, Lord, you know, in spite of this, I love you. And Jesus didn't say, all right we'll see. No, it was like Jesus didn't even need to respond. It was like, it was like the light of realization had come on in Simon. Are are you, are you with me? And it was so powerful. You see, this is what can happen when you and I disobey and we are broken over it. (laughs) It was so powerful that in the book of Acts, when Simon Peter was preaching to one of the most hostile crowds imaginable, Here, this man that denied the Lord multiple times, he had the audacity because he knew that he loved the Lord and he knew that Jesus had forgiven him. He looked out at that crowd. The man that denied Jesus looked out at that crowd. And how does he begin his sermon or bring it to a conclusion? He says, you all denied the Lord. The very thing he was poster child for. He said, you did it you did it, you did it, you did it, you denied the Lord. Now, was he being a hypocrite? No, he just knew that they were guilty of the same sin, but his was different because he had brought it to the cross and it was forgiven. Loved ones, when we fail, guard at all costs, a heart of brokenness. Now, I know you can be extreme. You can carry, you can carry guilt and shame long after you're forgiven. I, I know that, but we don't have time to talk about all the contingencies. You, you the, the point is be broken, let God heal you. The second nest that you can create is one of hardness. Israel and the 12 spies, not Israel and Jude, uh, Jude, uh, Judges 10, but Israel... And the 12 spies, when they're told to go into the land, they come back with the report. Two were positive, 10 were negative. And God said, that's it. You're not going in. You've been accusing me of not taking care of your children. Your children are going to go in and possess the land, but we're going to march around out here until every one of you is dead and your children will possess the land. And you know what Israel said? Well, now not so fast. They had been brought to the test 10 times and they had failed 10 times. They were 0 for 10. Now God says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna move anymore. I'm, I'm not I, I'll keep you alive. I'll feed you. I'll, I'll provide bread miraculously. I'll provide water out of the rock, but you will never be what I've called you to be because you just keep hardening your heart. And they said, basically what they said was, we're not gonna be shamed into repentance. Not gonna be shamed into repentance. You don't tell us how to live. So, okay, we'll go in and we'll possess the land. We'll we'll go in. That was what they were calling repentance. God said, no, don't do it. It, it, It's a passage in scripture where God is pleading. He says, you don't wanna do this. You don't want to do this. It's like somebody getting into an argument with somebody like Mike Tyson. And you don't know who Mike Tyson is and everybody around you is saying, you don't want to argue with this man. You don't want to get into the argument. God was saying, you don't wanna go into the land. They said, we'll go into the land and thousands of them died. They, they, They went a day late doing everything God told them to do And God allowed them to die. He said, I'll give you the land. I'll give you miraculous inheritance. I'll do more for you than you can possibly imagine. What difference does one sundown and sunup make? They were going to do it on their terms, not his terms. They, like the religious leaders in Israel's day, they didn't understand the hour of their visitation. I was reading in Amos this morning, and, and, um, and God said in, in Amos, uh, I think it was one and two. I know one and part of two, I think. He talks about seven or eight nations, and Amos uses a, a grammatical phrase that's interesting. He says, for three things, yes, for four, I will bring judgment on this nation. And it was a way of three, yes, for four. It was a way of saying their cup is full. It's not just that they did these things, but they're overflowing, You remember when God told uh, Abraham that his his descendants were going to have to be in Egypt for 400 years, he says, because the cup of iniquity of, uh, who was it, the Amorites is not yet full. See, God said, I'm not going to drive out innocent people to give you the land, but I know where they're going. They're a wicked people and I've got to wait till their cup is full. Then I'll drive them out. And God said of these six or seven nations, their cup is full, three, no four. It was, it was saying, they've not just done bad, they're overflowing. And, and Israel is cheering on saying, yes, 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 yes. And then uh, around chapter three, he comes to the end of the list and Israel is, yes, yes, yes. And then he says, for three sins, yes, for four, will I deal with Judah? Whoa, no, 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 no. Wait a minute now. Another three sins. Yes, for four, will I deal with Israel? He was exposing the hardness of their heart. They welcomed the judgment of God on everybody else. But when it came on them, they wanted to negotiate. And it was as though Israel says, my words, where's this come from? you telling us we're like the Philistines? Where did this come from? This is what God said in Amos 4. I gave you cleanness of teeth. Now, the American Dental Association would love that. But he said, when I gave you cleanness of teeth, what he was saying is your teeth were clean because there was no food to eat. He said, I gave you no water to drink. You had to travel to another town to get water. All of this was my judgment. He said, I sent blight and mildew. And after every one of these things, he says, but you would not return to me, but you would not return to me, but you would not return to me. I sent plagues, but you would not return to me. I sent unnecessary wars where your young men died unnecessarily, but you would not return to me. (coughs) He said, I just... I've def- I wanted to give peace to your cities, but I'm sending destruction to your cities and there's no peace. There's no prosperity and there's no blessing in the cities. Why? Because you would not return to me. See, loved ones, I, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that we as a people, that we as a church, and, and I'm not trying to shirk off anything the Lord's convicting you of, but I'm just talking about this isn't a message where I'm saying the church is guilty of this. I'm saying that we as believers can be guilty of wanting God to bring judgment as long as it's not on our sin or on our people. And it's also possible for us to see God bring judgment, understanding that judgment begins in the house of God, not understanding that all of this is given to turn us back to him, but we don't think we need to turn. It goes back to Malachi. There, there were seven accusations God made against Israel and they were written in a um, judicial form, like a legal document. He says, I say, but you say. And they argued with God over every one of those seven points. Their hearts were hardened. And what we must avoid is that, is that positioning where God has no choice except to turn us over to something. Like Romans 1, 24 to 25, it uses the phrase, God gave them up. And I'll let you read these verses later because they they are so detailed. We just don't have time to go into the detail. Or in Romans 1, 28 to 32, uh, three things happen and God says, I'm giving you up. I'm turning you over to a depraved mind. And he said, I'm, and for instance, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he said, God gave them over to a reprobate mind that they might believe a lie and be damned because they didn't love the knowledge of the truth. That's a dangerous place. That's where rebellion and unrepented of sin can take us. And he says, first of all, it will affect your actions. He says, you'll begin to do things that you know are wrong. Secondly, he said, you'll begin to have an attitude that says, well, it's not wrong unless we say it's wrong. And the third thing that will happen is he said, we will not only do these things that we know are wrong, but we will give approval in our society and say, this is all right. Loved ones, it's not because of enlightenment. It's not because of evolution. It's because of devolution. And I know that that's called hate speech in today's culture, but we need to understand that there is a biblical thing called sin. And when we try to bring any degree of morality into a culture that rejects the scripture, we can never agree because there's no absolute truth. Well, let's go to the third position. Now there's there's, uh, there's brokenness. Simon Peter said, Lord, I'm guilty. I did wrong. There's hardness. Well, we did wrong, but there's a reason we did wrong. If you were a better God, you wouldn't have so much trouble with us. And we're going to set things according to what we believe is fair. I, 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 the more I try to witness, the more I hear this, God's just not fair. First of all, the things that they've say, make God unfair or things God had nothing to do about. Uh, God has nothing to do with the abuse of a child. God has nothing to do with the rape of a woman. God has nothing to do with this kind of stuff. That's the result of our choices and our sin and our acting upon it. Uh, then they say, God's not fair. And I have to agree, now I gotta hand it to him, God is not fair. Because if he was fair, I'd be a grease spot on I-20. If he was fair, I'd be in hell. I don't want God to be fair. I want God to be merciful. I want God to be merciful. And the last one is tenderness. Now, if there is sin in your life, are you broken over it? Do you want help? Or are you hard-hearted? You're saying, well, life's not been fair to me. I deserve this concession. Or can you be tender? Can you be at the point the people in Judges 10 were? they had abused the grace and patience of God and when they received a refusal of divine help, they still turned from wickedness. Their heart was turned toward God even though God told them they had gone too far. And this action resulted in God turning to help them. What do we do with this? I know this has been kind of heavy today, but uh, uh, it's really good news. It's saying we don't have to be a servant to the thing that has kept us in bondage any longer. But there are four things that I think are the keys to walking in victory over sin. Now, again, none of us are sin free. I, I, I don't believe we have to sin. But as I said, I believe we do sin. We're not making an excuse for that. We ought to, you know, well, the Bible says be perfect as I am perfect. Well, of course, that's our target. What is he going to say? Be 80% righteous? Be perfect 90% of the time? I mean, would your wife be happy if you resisted sexual temptation nine out of 10 times? No, we're, we're to be perfect. That's our goal. We strive for perfection. But the reality is not many of us have attained to it. In fact, I don't know of anybody that's attained to it. One man told me I know of somebody that was perfect. Uh, and I said, Jesus, and he doesn't count. And he said, no, I'm uh, not talking about Jesus. He said, listen to my wife. Her first husband was perfect. <laughs> no, none of us are perfect except Jesus. And when I say Jesus doesn't count, I meant that's a given. We know he's perfect. But here are four things that we need to wrap our hearts around. And in and, and, and the still of the night when your world seems shaken, wrap your heart around these things. Here's number one, understand that the price of disobedience is often higher for the people of God. The price of disobedience is often higher for the people of God because it's a sin against light. It's a sin against light. You know, I was talking about Amos and this is what it says in Amos three, I think. God said, your sin is so grievous because you are the only nation on earth whom I have shown myself. You're the only one. You are a light for everybody else. You have more light than anybody else. So your sins are worse. And we find as we move on through the Old Testament record that God would judge Israel using people that were far more wicked than they were. It's a sin within covenant. See, all sin is sin, but when you enter into covenant, especially a blood covenant, that's that's incredibly grievous. It's the idea of grieving. Secondly, okay, understand, now hear me, understand that God's dealing with your sin may seem harsh, but can I tell you that's actually a sign of his love? In Hebrews, it tells us That we're not to be upset when God deals with us for our sin. We ought to be terrified when he doesn't deal with us. Here's the second thing. Avoid the sin of the high hand. We talked about that. Ananias and Sapphira, that mystical passage, you say, why would God? I've done worse than that and God didn't kill me. It's because Ananias and Sapphira, there there are two or three reasons possibly. But I think part of it was Ananias and Sapphira's sin was a sin of the high hand. They knew what they were doing. They plotted and planned it. And when Peter said, you've not lied to men, well, of course they had. He said, you've not lied to men, you've lied to God. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Loved ones, without taking the 30 minutes it deserves to explain that passage, basically what he was saying is you've sinned with a high hand. When you know right from wrong and you are challenged, Peter Peter said, now, has this happened? Did this happen? That was their chance. That was their chance to say, well, no, 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 no. Let me set the record straight. Peter challenging them was God's giving them grace to turn from their sin. That's why I tell people, not because I'm the preacher, but I take this attitude when I'm in the congregation. Anytime you're in church and the Holy Ghost deals with you about something, don't run from it. Humble yourself. Let me tell you, we... I do have this concern about our church. We know a lot, but we don't have a lot of people that come to the altar. We we take our knowledge from here and we take our conviction from here and we say, we'll deal with it. But loved ones, if the Holy Ghost is striking your heart now, that's the time to turn to God. You say, well, when wouldn't we know if revival comes? Well, I think we've had several revival moments through the years, but I will not be satisfied until we go long past service time with people in the altars. And loved ones, we have, we have become sophisticated savages where we want someone to point out possible flaws and then we'll take it home and analyze it. If we don't like it, we'll go to another church or watch another guy on live stream. But loved ones, I want to tell you, the book of Acts account is they came to the presence of God. They came together and they fell on their faces till the deed was dealt with. And you say, Pastor, you're fussing at me. I'm fussing at all of us. We have got to stop treating this as though we put in our two hours weekly and we check it off. And we've got to understand that when the Holy Ghost comes and begins to speak to us, that's the time to, I mean, it's the time to crawl to the altar if you need to. And I'm saying from pastors all the way through the congregation, the sin of the high hand, they knew it was wrong. They were confronted by God through Peter And they held to their lie. And he said, God is going to deal with you for the sin of the high hand. Back in the 80s, I think it was, 70s or 80s, Judson Cornwall wrote a book. It's been that long since I read it. But the name of the book was From Incense to Insurrection. And he talked about the children of Israel in the wilderness and how they went from whatever you command us, we'll do to building a calf. And it was called Incense to Insurrection. And on the cover was was a very clever drawing of a hand that was lifted in praise to God. And then the artwork showed it morphing into this. From incense to insurrection. From incense to insurrection. And loved ones, we must not give sin a home in our heart because it will harden our heart and we will find that eventually, if we're not, I'm not saying it happens to everybody because this is a serious, serious thing. It doesn't happen to everybody. But you can morph from I'll, I'll accommodate my sin to, to a place where God turns you over to your sin. You say, I, I just don't know if I believe that pastor. Well, I'll just you let, just let you be wrong. No, I'm teasing. But I tell you what I do know. I do know this. I do know that if, if we're not, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll forget verses like the old Testament passage that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, I, when I grew up, I thought that meant if there's sin in my heart, God isn't going to hear me. And I had a dilemma because I knew I'd failed God through the week. And there I was on Sunday night altar call wanting to call out to God for help, but he's not going to hear me because I'm regarding sin in my heart. But that, that passage does not mean if I have sin in my heart. thank God he hears us even with sin in our heart you say well the Bible says we know that God does not hear sinners that was not doctrine that was a comment somebody made um, that was recorded and it, it, it contextually I understand it but it wasn't even true but when it says if I regard iniquity in my heart it means this if I make a place in my heart for my sin so that Pastor Glenn may be leading me in worship. Ryan may be bringing me right into the presence of God and I feel the presence of the Lord. Lord, have your way, but just not with everything. I make a throne for my sin. I hide it in my heart. God said, if you come to me with your hands lifted and your mouth singing, but you have no intention of dealing with your sin. He said, don't think that I'm going to answer your prayers. Now, sometimes he does out of mercy, but we're traveling a dangerous road. I love what PD said a while back, and it's, it's boy, it's been a life changer for me. Um, and I may not be doing it justice. I don't know if PD's here today, but he could, I ought to call him up to say it, but he doesn't know what I'm talking about. But he said, he said, no matter how long you've been on the road, no matter how far down the road you've gone, you're still just a few feet from the ditch. And that taught me, that taught me that we, it doesn't matter if I'm young in Christ, old in Christ, if I'm a young man or an old man, however long I've been on this road, I'm still a few missteps from the ditch and we need to be careful. So avoid the sin of the high hand. Number three, take hope because judgment's not always terminal. There was a situation in Corinth that was so bad, so bad that Paul said, you people aren't dealing with this. It was a sexual sin in the church. He said, you are even taking, he said, you're puffed up over it. And in our culture, he would say this, there's a, there's a very serious sexual sin going on in your church. And in the name of tolerance, you're welcoming it. He said, now I'm going to tell you what the Lord has told me to do. I want the leaders. Now, this is not something that the parishioners do. Don't do this in small group meeting tonight. You know, don't do this around the family dinner. This is not for everybody to do. It's a very, very radical thing that is the, that is the responsibility of the highest church leadership. Paul said, listen, you're, you guys aren't dealing with this right, so this is what I'm gonna tell you to do. Take this man that you've welcomed into fellowship and turn him over to Satan, For the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that maybe he'll come to his senses and his soul can be saved even if it cost him his life. That's how serious this thing is. Now we don't have any classes on extreme church discipline. In fact, the only church I know that ever did this was sued for doing it. But he said, this is so serious. You you quit treating them like everything's fine. You turned, he didn't tell them to do anything except withdraw. He said, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He says, if it costs his life, maybe he'll come to his senses spiritually. Now, you say, man, that's serious. Have you ever known anybody like that, Pastor? Well, I tell you what, I've, I've known a couple of people, not at this church, and I mean that sincerely. Um, and, and even if there was somebody at this church, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't mention you. My, my case studies are, are all approaching 30 years old, okay? Uh, I don't talk about you and your issues. Um, that, that would not be right. But there have been a couple of uh, people in the past that I've conducted their funeral or I stood by their grave. And I thought this was not necessary. This was not necessary. This is too early for them to go to heaven. But they were headed down a path of such destruction. God didn't tell me he did it. But I would not have been surprised if God did not lift his hand and take them to heaven to avoid further damage in their life. That's subjective and I can't give you a thus saith the Lord. And let me tell you, even if you think that's true of somebody, it's probably something you ought not to say. But I tell you what happened in Corinth. Paul wrote back in 2 Corinthians. He said, now you did good about the man that I said to turn over to Satan. He's repented. So what you need to do now is let up and let him back into the church because he repented. Here's a man that was so arrogant that God said it's better for him to die than to keep living this way. But with the passing of a few months, the lesson took And he came back and Paul said, now, okay, the mistake you made before was this way. Now you're making this mistake. You're not letting him up. Let him up, let him breathe, welcome him back to the fellowship of the church. And the point I'm trying to make is that no matter how grievous you feel your sin may be, it doesn't need to be terminal. No matter how long that cycle has held you, you don't have to stay in that cycle. And here's the last thing. Always seek a tenderized heart. Stay before the Lord. Make your devotional life a priority. Learn to bring your thoughts under the control of Christ. Stop having those conversations with yourself. Stop rehearsing what you're going to say if you get a chance. The Lord said through Isaiah the prophet in chapter 58 9, he said, you're fasting, you're doing all this feast, you're doing all the religious stuff, but here's the fast I've chosen. He said to set people free. And he said, and one of the things that I want you to do is stop pointing the finger. Withdraw the accusing finger. Withdraw the accusing finger. You say, but they're guilty. He didn't say they weren't guilty. He said, you don't have to point it out. Well, they're, they're guilty. Maybe, but it's not your place to point it out. Well, they're, they're failing you, Lord. Well, pull your finger back because that's between me and them. I know how to take care of my children. And he said, if you'll do this, I am here to help you. See, we say, if we can fast more, if we can cast out, if we can bind territorial spirits, if we can, you know, eat a half a bag of Fritos instead of a whole bag or whatever. We put all of these, if we can do this, God will help us. And basically what God says is, if you'll just withdraw accusation, if you'll let me be in charge, I'm here to help you. Mike Bickle is one of the most uh, amazing men of God that I know. He's the leader of the IHOP prayer movement. I guess is that what his title would be, leader of the of the prayer movement. He used to be pastor of the church, but about um, probably twenty five years, thirty years ago, Mike Bickle was on everybody's hit list. He's this, he's that, he's done this with, and the fact is that none of it was true. And uh, I mean, none of it was true. But Mike Bickle's approach was. Lord, if, there's, if they see something I don't see, show me, show me. And this is what he said that the Lord told him. I, I didn't know this for decades. In fact, it's just the last couple of years. He said, the Lord told me that if I would just withdraw the accusing finger at people that were pointing at me, he said, if I would just not defend myself, he said, I will elevate you, Mike, and I'll give you a worldwide ministry. And so Mike did that. And he was under incredible pressure and criticism. And he said something over and over again. Let's say, for instance, that Justin was just saying I was this, that, and the other. Just horrible things. When somebody would come and say, what can you tell me about Justin Smith? Even if I knew Justin was was a snake in the grass, lower than snake dung. I mean, just a bad guy. My response, if I was Mike Bickle, my response would be, Well, I know Justin loves God and he's trying to please him. Talk about letting him off the hook. And he said that about one enemy after another. They're really just trying to please God. There comes a point where you want to say, some people just need killing. Some people just need a beating. But Mike Bickle stuck with, uh, I I don't know, but I, I know they're really trying to please God. And his enemies, for the most part, his enemies became his friends. And God validated his life because he said, none of us are beyond reproach. And none of us, none of us can afford to be with a hardened heart. None of us can. Um, I made a statement in a class I was teaching. I'm getting up so you'll think I'm quitting. And uh, I made a, a statement in a, in a class I was teaching and this is what I said to a group of young men, and you could tell that most of them were pastoring little churches. And I said, I think the best pastors, I said, I said the problem right now is we train men and women to be CEOs. We teach them to be business leaders of a ministry and they don't have pastor's hearts in many situations. And I said, I want you guys to understand that the best hearts for pastors are very tender hearts. You're very vulnerable. and." Um, Somebody said, well, if you're tender hearted, you're going to get the snot stomped out of you. You need to toughen up. And I said, you can toughen up, but you've got to decide, are you going to pastor your, your church with a tender heart? Or are you going to pastor your heart with a hard heart, your, your church with a hard heart? I said, no. I said, God made you the way he made you for a purpose. And you will not be a better pastor with a hard heart. He said, but I'm going to get hurt if I have a tender heart. And I said, and your point is? <laughs> yes. And I want to say this to you loved ones. You're not going to be a better husband with a hard heart. Right. You're not going to be a better wife with a hard heart. You're not going to be a better parent with a hard heart. The most valuable, precious gift you can have is a tender heart. You say, well, I'm tired of being hurt. I know. And that's why you take it all to the Lord. I want us to grasp this scripture I know Paul said I reckon that means I've done the math and I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be revealed with the glory that's going to be revealed in us the question is where, where do you want your glory where do you want your affirmation what, what did was it, what, was it Paul what did he call it momentary light afflictions. These are people being beheaded. These are people having their children beheaded in front of them. And Paul's not making light of that, but he said, when we understand the grand scheme, he says, this is momentary and this is light. Now I want this side to think I'm quitting. I, I think it was in the book Jesus Freaks, and there was the story of in uh, in uh, Asia. I can't remember the uh, the country. I think Vietnam, but I'm not sure. Um, government forces that was a communist government, atheistic government, invaded a church uh, that had been meeting for months and it thought they were pretty well safe. And as a part of that confrontation, they took. Uh, if I remember correctly, a, 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 a newborn or, or very young baby out of the arms of the pastor's wife took that baby, went to the window, and threw it down. And of course, the baby died. And when I read that, I wanted, I, I wanted somebody needs shooting. Some somebody needs, somebody needs John Wayne. But what that mother did. They made a statement, said, well, let's see if you still can sing your songs about Jesus. And they left, and that, the ladies gathered the child and brought that dead body to that mother. And she went back to the front row, and she sat down. Justin, this is a mistake. I'm going to need help in a minute. <laughs> sat down with that baby, put it to her breast, and just began to rock. She looked at her husband and said, I'll finish the service. I want my last moments with my baby to be in the presence of Jesus, worshiping him. Let me tell you something. Anybody that can call that momentary light affliction has seen something that you don't find on your television screen. They understand that there is a reality far greater than this one. And if that's true, why would we want to hold to anything that lessens it? We've got to go because I've run out of sides to fool. (laughs) Father, help us. Lord, I don't want us to ever be a legalistic, mean church, but oh God, we want to have our eyes on Jesus. Would you please help us? Some of us are facing affliction, persecution, difficulty, illness, rejection. There's no telling what people that are hearing me this morning are dealing with. But Lord, let it tenderize us, not harden us. When we're afraid, may we trust in you. When we are convicted, may we run to the altar. May we stop drive by churching, where we drop in to get a little something and then go home as though we've encountered nothing. I pray for you, Lord, fill our altars again. Oh, I know our people are growing and they're dealing with sin, I I know that. But Lord, I don't want us to get so comfortable with dealing with something from a distance that we forget the victories that are won on our face before you. I know there are people, because of distance, on, they follow us on livestream, they can't be here, but they can make an altar at their home. Lord, may we learn to deal with what you are choosing to deal with in Jesus' name.